All right. Good morning, family. It's really good to see those of you who are here. Understandably, many from our family uh, are not here. Some are not allowed to make that decision for themselves, and so they're at home, uh, not by choice, but because they have to be. And some from our family are choosing to stay home either out of concern for their own personal well-being or their family's well-being or uh, a motive of love for neighbor and just wanting to make sure they do everything possible not to participate in the perpetuation of uh, COVID. And we respect that. We, we respect that as well. Um, so we're recording this, uh, this gathering and we'll immediately upload it for our family members that are not here right now. And uh, so essentially, they'll be able to participate in, by listening into our worship gathering at the same time we kick our second gathering uh, a little bit later this morning. On Friday and Saturday, we were trying to figure out, I mean, can we meet? Should we meet? And um, we knew the Marine Corps was locking down hard. Uh, we knew that before anything else. So we were just kind of waiting on the Air Force's policy to see how that was going to break out. And um, it was a little bit ambiguous. We had to reach out for clarity, and, and we, did, we did find out, no, it's perfectly acceptable. Um, personnel are authorized to be off base for worship gatherings. Chapels are open, that kind of thing. But the stipulation was no high-density gatherings. So we're like, well, none of our Marines will be present, so our density level goes right down, like right off the bat. So yeah, we can, we can gather. Uh, low density minus the Marine Corps, so we're, we're good. So, But for those uh, of our family members who are Marine Corps and at home, but would rather be here. Uh, we just want to say to you, uh, we love you guys. We're praying for you. And uh, we do hope you're enjoying your, your, I mean, they call it shelter in place. You could call it house arrest. I mean, it's all semantics at this point, like you're, you're at home, but we do miss you. This morning, we press into our, our counterculture kingdom series and explore how the gospel changes absolutely everything. And in Matthew's gospel, uh, we have been learning that Jesus is king. Now, let's just be clear about this. This is, this is not a Sunday school title that we give to Jesus. It's not just some empty religious idea. Uh, it's, it's not just semantics like shelter in place or house arrest. Like, he really is king. And so, what that means for us is I don't actually own the rights to my life. Like Jesus owns the rights to my life. I, I am not the master of my destiny. Jesus is the master of my destiny. I don't have autonomy. I don't have authority over myself. All of these things belong to Jesus. And this is what it means for Jesus to be king. He's our creator. He's our rescuing king. He calls us to submit to him, and that's exactly what we're created for. Last week, we learned that Jesus is our righteous king. He hates injustice. Any expression of injustice in any place, in any culture, however it's categorized, whether it's financial injustice um, or racial injustice or fill in the blank, whatever form injustice takes in any culture, Jesus hates it. He loves justice. Uh, we need his justice. We need his righteousness. We learned about the word imputed last week. Remember, meaning we don't have the righteousness we need to be in relationship with God. We can only get that by faith through the work of Jesus. So that's imputed. It's given to us or credited to us, even though we didn't have it. We also learned about imaged righteousness, being reminded that we are created for this, to uh, live into the image of Jesus. That's what he's recreating in us. And we also learned about the honor we have of participating in, in breaking righteousness. Remember, we live in broken kingdoms in this world, but Jesus as king is working. He's working justice. He's working to make all of the sad things come untrue, and he calls his family to participate in that work with him. 
This week, we are going to see that Jesus is the merciful king who gives mercy to all who ask. Jesus is the merciful king who gives mercy to all who ask. Here's what we're going to see. Jesus' kingdom is countercultural because it is a kingdom of mercy. Mercy is what makes Jesus' kingdom so countercultural. We're also going to see that Jesus' kingdom is a merciful kingdom simply because he is the merciful king. All mercy originates with Jesus, and so his character shapes the culture of his kingdom. Jesus is the merciful king who gives mercy to all who ask. All right, so let's look at that first perspective. Jesus' kingdom is countercultural because it is a kingdom of mercy. Well, what is mercy? What is mercy? Before we define mercy, uh, maybe, maybe we should ask this question. When have you needed mercy? When in your lifetime have you really, I mean like really needed mercy? For me, I remember uh, one, one, one time, I, I, my early teenage years were spent in Northeast Pennsylvania, um, Dalton, Pennsylvania to be exact. That's where I got my, driver, my learner's permit and my driver's license. My first car was the family car. It was a Plymouth Reliant K-Wagon, baby powder blue with a kind of a wood panel stripe. It was its classic look and a cassette tape. So right after I got my license, I had all my favorite songs. Ask me later, I'll tell you what a cassette tape is, okay? You do have one, don't you? You have a cassette tape. Well, in Dalton, when you kind of got off the little, it wasn't a highway, but the main road, and you came down to the stop sign, and then you'd head up the hill, the road split right there. There was a bit of a Y, and to the left was the most direct way home. It was quick. To the right was really windy with lots of fun little hills, and it, it was longer but if you knew the road and you really gave it all the gas that you could on every corner and over every hill, you could beat whomever had gone the other direction if they were driving legally. And so it was nighttime. I think I had just either gotten off of work or come, was coming home from youth group. I get to the stop, stop sign. I look in my rearview mirror. There's a set of headlights. I'm like, well, I'm, let's, I'll just have a little fun on the way home. And so I, I, I lock in the type of car that it is, and I just take off. And I go as fast as I can. I get as much air as I can over every hill. I, I, I just kind of drift with every curve that I can. And I come around to the final stop sign where the, the, the other road is going to meet up, and I see the headlights off in the distance. It was the car, and I had done it. I, I successfully beat them to this point. So I bang my right, and then an immediate left to go up the hill to my house, and I look in my, my rear view mirror and the other car bangs a left too to come up the hill to my house. We lived in a, a trailer park then, which was something I was really embarrassed about. And I forget what we called it, but we never, said, we never called it a trailer park. And uh, we get to, I get to the top of the hill. And so I'm turning left off of the paved road onto the gravel pothole filled trailer park road. And I'm slowly winding down. And this other car does the same thing. I'm like, oh, that's odd. But cool, I guess. I just beat one of my neighbors home. That's pretty cool. And I press in towards my own double-wide trail. Actually, we had just upgraded. It was a triple-wide, which is a thing in Pennsylvania. Like, we were the upper middle class of trailer park living. And so I turn into my driveway, and the other car starts to slow down. And it also turns into my driveway. And the door opens, and it's my dad, who had just had that talk with me about, son, I trust you. Don't do anything to violate that trust. And here I had just raced him home, not knowing it was dad. In that moment, I needed mercy. I'm sure you have a moment like that in your own life. So what is mercy? 
Mercy, Wayne Grudem defines mercy this way. This is short and I like it. He says, mercy is God's goodness toward those in misery or distress. Okay, so mercy is God's goodness toward those in misery or distress. Now, John Stott takes a slightly different angle. Um, or he just uses different words. He said, mercy is compassion for people in need. Okay, so mercy is compassion for mercy in need or for people in need. So what I'd like to do is, I think Wayne has, has a pretty good corner on it, and so does John Stott, but let's mash them together and make our own definition, and here it is. Mercy is compassion leading to action aimed at alleviating misery or distress. Um, because it's not one or the other. It's not just the compassion, nor is it the action without the compassion. Mercy is both of those things together. So mercy is compassion leading to action, and the action is aimed at alleviating misery or distress. Now, we need to be careful here, and here's where, where, why we need to be careful. We tend to think as people, man, you know, once upon a time, I needed mercy. Like, there was a time in my life where I raced dad home, not knowing it was dad, and I beat him, and I needed mercy. I got it, and I'm, I'm good. Or we might think to ourselves, you know, occasionally I need mercy. From time to time, I need mercy. I'll admit that. Occasionally, I, I do. Or we might say, no, I prayed the prayer. You know, I, I went forward at youth camp and I got mercy. It was great. And that one-time mercy feeling was, is good to get me all the way through my life. And so then we take this posture of us versus them. Mercy is something that they need. And I needed it, but I got it. And so now I'm good. But guys, the gospel is very clear with us. And the gospel says this to us. I need mercy every moment of my life. There is never a moment in my life where I do not need mercy from God. We need mercy for our circumstances. We see that in Psalm 116.5, where the psalmist says, our God is merciful. He's merciful. And then in the next verse, the psalmist goes on to say, when I was brought low, he saved me. Man, we have circumstances that bring us low all the time. And the reason God rescues us and brings us out of those circumstances is precisely because he's a God of mercy. He's merciful. So we need mercy for our circumstances. We need mercy in our souls. This is Psalm 30, verse 10. And the psalmist says, hear, O Lord, and here's a prayer, be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. That's what mercy is. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing, and you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Guys, we have moments like that in our soul every day, all the time, where we need to cry out to God who alone is the merciful one and say, God, I need your mercy right now. I need you to be my helper. I need you to turn my mourning into dancing. I need you to turn my sadness into gladness. That's mercy. We also need mercy because of our sin, right? Not just because of our circumstances, not just because of our weak souls, but because of our sin. When David sinned and prayed his prayer of confession, which we have in Psalm 51, he goes like this. Have mercy, that's what he's asking for from his father. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Guys, we need mercy all the time because of our sin. Like there is not a moment in our lives, there's not a day in our lives in which we don't need all the mercy that God has to give. 
And God's mercy is a pursuing mercy. This is the beautiful thing about God's mercy. It's not just passive. He's not just waiting for us to ask. If you are a rescued rebel adopted into God's family, the Father has an active, pursuing mercy that is constantly chasing you down. We see this in Psalm 23. So this is the prayer of somebody who is a rescued rebel and has been adopted in. And he says this, he says, surely, you guys know this, surely goodness and what? Mercy. What does mercy do? Follow me. It's going to follow me all the days of my life. Guys, that's really good news for us because I do not live a single second of my life in which I do not need God's mercy. I need mercy following me, pursuing me, and chasing me down every moment of my life for the circumstances that I find myself in in this broken world, uh, for the, 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 the darker moments of my soul, which happen all the time, and for mercy for my sin, my rebellion from my father. Now, remember when we said mercy is what makes Jesus' kingdom countercultural? Most kingdoms crush people in need of mercy. Um, most cultures loathe people who need mercy. They're weak people. Like, well, why can't you be strong like the, the rest of us? Like, how much longer will we need to support your weaknesses? Like, can't you just, like, fix yourself? And we'll give you mercy once, but don't ask again. We'll give it to you twice, but we have a three-strike policy. You're, like, you're out then. We generally in cultures take that approach towards people who need mercy. Maybe we tolerate them, but actually you know what most cultures do? We use people who need mercy. I mean, take the poor as an example. Not only do most cultures, all cultures, to include our own, loathe having to give mercy perpetually to those who are poor, we as a culture, every culture around the world, has found a way to market to the poor and to take advantage of their poverty and to actually make money off of their impoverished states. Proverbs, the book of Proverbs talks about this all the time, and God's word is very clear about not taking advantage of those who are poor. But we have very utilitarian cultures in our rebellion. We use people and we, we do whatever gives us the greatest advantage. Most kingdoms crush people in need of mercy. Most cultures loathe them, but not Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is countercultural precisely because of mercy. It's what sets God's family apart from the rest of the world. So Jesus' kingdom is a countercultural kingdom because it is a kingdom of mercy. Now, why is it a kingdom of mercy? It's a kingdom of mercy because Jesus is the merciful king. Did you know that all through scripture, God's, especially in the Old Testament, his primary self-revelation when he was making himself known to people, do you know what he would most often lead with and emphasize? Well, you might guess it. It's his mercy. It's his mercy. Here's an example when he was revealing more of who he was to Moses, right? In Exodus, Exodus 34, it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, and here's the first thing that he says about himself, a God merciful, a God merciful. He is a merciful God. He is full of mercy. This idea is unpacked all through scripture. I like the way Paul writes about it in Ephesians 2. He says, God, your father, is rich in mercy. Did you know that? When you were adopted in, you were adopted by a wealthy father. But his, his riches, his equity is found in the wealth of his mercy. That's what God invests in, and that's what God distributes. It's mercy. He's rich in it. 
which means he has an inexhaustible supply, which is good because do you know what we have? An inexhaustible need. We have a perpetual and inexhaustible need for his mercy. So it's good for us that he's rich in mercy. Lamentations tells us that God's mercies never come to an end. They never come to an end. The Psalms tell us that God's mercies are new. Every morning you wake up, they're waiting for you. They've chased you down while you've been still in your sleep, and they are waiting for you. I like this too. Psalm 145 verse 9 says this. uh, God's mercy... um, goes out towards everybody, whether they are Christians or not. It says, the Lord is good to who? All people. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So there is a general flow of God's mercy towards everything that he has created. We can understand that way, uh, this way. Every need that you have that has been satisfied is satisfied because God's merciful. What does that mean? You need air to breathe. Every breath you draw is a gift of God's mercy. You need water to live. Every ounce of water you consume is a gift of God's mercy to you. Every need that you have is given to you for your good because God is a God of mercy. But it's not just your needs, all your joys, like the things that you eat, that you like, the way that you feel when you exercise, the way that your body responds when you have rest, peace, happiness, all of these joys in life, enjoying every good thing that God has created, those are gifts of his mercy towards us. He, he, does, he gives these gifts to everyone that he has created. And you know what's crazy about that? We have all rebelled. We are all rebels, enemies to him, and yet he still pours out streams of mercy toward people who deserve, myself included, nothing but judgment. And then God the Father gives a special mercy for those who, are, who have repented and believed in Jesus, the greatest mercy that we need, the forgiveness of our rebellion and acceptance into his family. So Jesus is the rescuing king who gives mercy to all who ask. We saw that. Grant read for us the Beatitudes, and then he read for us from Matthew chapter 20, where we saw Jesus leaving Jericho. He encounters two blind men. If you read the story in the Gospel of Mark, we find out that one of these men is named Bartimaeus. And so these two men cry out and they say, Lord, have, what do they need right now? Mercy. So that, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And so the people in the crowd, most likely the disciples, Jesus' disciples, rebuke the two blind men and they say, hey man, be quiet. Shut up. Stop trying to get his attention. Uh, we don't have time for you. We're leaving Jericho to do important things in Jerusalem. Uh, leave Jesus alone. Clearly not understanding the culture of Jesus' kingdom yet. But their attempt to silence these men actually kind of fires them up to call out for mercy even more. And so they cry out even more and they say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now that title, Son of David, is really unfamiliar to us, right? I mean, do you ever pray to the Son of David? When you're speaking of Jesus, do you ever refer to him? When you're trying to explain the gospel to to people, like, do we just say, well, let me tell you about the Son of David. Do you ever hear that culturally? Like, we don't. It's not, it's foreign to us. It's not familiar to us. But for a first century Jew, I mean, this was part of the common core curriculum. Like, it doesn't matter what your kind of curriculum was. Son of David was its own module every year. Like, everybody knew who the Son of David went, uh, was. This went back thousands of years for their culture. 
And the son of David referred to the one who would be a promised king from the line of David, Israel's greatest king ever. But Israel had experienced failed king after failed king after failed king. And the hope was, the belief was that God would send the perfect king and he would have the title of son of David. And so Jesus was not just a son of David because David had lots of descendants. Lots of sons of David came and went. Every one of them, some of them good, but not good enough, but most of them bad and really bad, turning people away from God. They all failed. Jesus alone was the son of David. He would not fail. He would be perfect. He would be perfectly righteous, perfectly just. He would be merciful. He would be kind. He would be would be good, and he would reconcile a rebellious people to their God. That's what the son of David would do. That's who he was. And so here in Matthew, these two blind men are calling out to the son of David, begging him for mercy. And how does Jesus respond? How does he respond to them? Guys, this is the culture of mercy that sets the church, Jesus' kingdom, apart from all of the cultures around us. Jesus stopped and he called to them. And what did, what did Jesus say to these two very needy people? What did he say? What do you need me to do for you? What do you need? Just tell me what you need, I'll do it. What did he ask? What do you want? Do you hear, like, do you hear that? Do you see that word? Do you see the difference? He asked these two very needy rebel sons, what would you, what would you like for me to do? What do you want me to do for you. And so they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, here's a synonym for mercy in pity, right? So this is pity is the emotional posture of mercy. So it's how we feel what we believe before we act for the good of another. Pity is not condescending. It's not placing ourselves above someone. Pity is just this posture of, of mercy getting ready to flow out. So it precedes the action. In pity, in mercy, Jesus, Jesus responds and he touches their eyes and immediately they recover their sight and they follow him. I don't know, do you ever have the question in your mind, like, does God hear me when I pray? Does God even hear the words that I'm saying right now? Well, this passage gives us the answer to that question that our hearts tend to ask every day. Does Jesus hear me when I actually open my mouth and speak as if he's here? Well, we see in this passage that when, when we call out to the son of David in need of mercy, he stops, he listens, and then he asks. And his question to you when you cry out to the son of David is, son, what do you want me to do for you? Daughter, today, what, what do you want for me to do for you? And Jesus responds this way to every sinner who cries, son of David, have mercy on me. And so they cry out, what do they need? What do they, what do they want? Hey, Lord, we need, we need you to open our eyes. We're blind and we can't see. And so in pity, Jesus responds. There's the compassion, which fuels the action, which works for the good of somebody who is in misery or distress. And guys, we can learn from these blind men because we need the same thing. 
in our rebellion, the Bible is very clear. It's as if we, we are dead men walking. We are blind men, blind women walking. We cannot see ourselves truly. We can't see God's truly. We can't see the stuff around us truly. We need Jesus to open our eyes. But this is not just a one-time request. Like this is a daily need. Remember when we talked last week about how God loves justice and righteousness and in our rebellion, it's not just that we are unjust. Like we are unrighteous. We practice our own injustice. And so collectively as cultures, we practice practice systemic injustices where you just couple all of our rebellious tendencies together. But it's not just that. It's that our sense of justice is broken. It's like the compass that we have inside of our souls can't find true north. So it turns in on itself and we define justice or righteousness however we want to. That's why our culture is so confused right now. And we're so, these terms become so complicated to us. Like what are we even talking about when we talk about social justice? Like that's why there is so much confusion in these conversations. Our sense of justice turns in on itself and we don't have the eyes to see And so this is not a one-time prayer, guys. This is what we pray to the son of David every day. Jesus, I just need you to open my eyes. Like, I need to be able to see truth. I need to be able to see justice. And I need to be able to see righteousness and mercy. I need to be able to see you. And I need to be able to see myself through your eyes. We can learn from these blind men. Verse 34 says that they recovered their sight and they followed Jesus. Meaning, check this out, I love this. So they received their sight and they followed Jesus. So they receive mercy. And in the New Testament, to follow Jesus means to learn of him, to be a disciple, to learn of his ways. So we could say it this way. They receive mercy and then they learn the way of mercy. So they receive mercy and then they learn the practice of mercy and then they repeat mercy as a pattern of life for the rest of the days as followers of Jesus. That's how Jesus' mercy shapes the culture of his kingdom and our church. When we choose to follow Jesus, we are choosing to learn the way of mercy and to repeat the pattern of mercy that he has given us. And that's why Jesus says, he says this in Matthew, as our king, he looks at us and he says, now I want you to do this. I want you to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And he gives this command. He says, I want you to be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Wow. How is our father merciful? Well, our father is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So how are we to be merciful? To be kind to the ungrateful and to those who treat us with evil intent. That's what mercy does. And so the culture of our family, this church, is meant to display the character of our king and his gospel. So what does it look like to be rich in mercy like our Father? What does that look like for us, right? What does that look like for us today to be rich in mercy? Well, a guy named Thomas Watson wrote it this way, and I really like this. He says, we are merciful when we lay to heart the miseries of others and we are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their good, right? That is the daily posture of mercy. We lay to heart the miseries of others and we are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their good. That's what a merciful posture looks like. And then, man, Watson loves the topic of mercy. So then he goes on to say, look, there are really five streams of mercy in life and, um, that he sees in the Bible. And I don't want to unpack all those five, but two, I think, are very important for us to see this morning. And so the first stream he calls soul mercy, soul mercy. The second stream he calls sin mercy. Those I just want to unpack briefly with you. Let's look at soul mercy first. Soul mercy initiates relationships with other people for Jesus' fame and for their good. That's what soul mercy is. It initiates relationships with people with the primary motive being 
I'm in this relationship for that person's good and for Jesus' fame. That's what soul mercy is. And that soul mercy is expressed, not just in the family, but especially towards those who are outside of the family. Some of you have read Augustine, lived a long time ago. Some of his, you you need Google Translate along with you to translate some of his words, but he's got some great stuff. Here's a question that he asks about mercy, and it's so good. He said, if I cry for the body from which the soul is departed, so if I cry over a dead person, How should I weep for the soul from which God is departed? What's he saying? We will shed a ton of tears over somebody whose life is gone. And we should. That's appropriate that we do. But why don't we cry those same kinds of tears over all of our friends for whom God is not present with them in their rebellion? Soul mercy initiates relationship for the good of another. Paul tells us that to be without God in this world is to be without hope. As like we realize that, right? To be living in this world apart from a reconciled relationship with the Father through Jesus is to be living in existence without hope. Paul says that to be living in existence without God is to be a stranger to his promises, to not even know that the life-giving promises of God exist. Paul goes on to say that we, however, those of us who have been adopted in, we are, he uses the word ministers, he just means servants, of reconciliation, God, meaning God adopts us into the family to show us mercy and then to send us back out so that we, uh, we, we become these ambassadors of reconciliation, if you will, uh, going back out to those who don't know God's mercy. And so if we run with Augustine's question, If I weep for that body from which the soul is departed, how should I weep for that soul from which God has departed? Let's ask this question. Whose soul did I weep for this week? Like whose soul, whose name do I have written down that I actively pray for and weep over simply because they don't know Jesus and they have not received uh, particular mercy from the Father? Who am I praying will be reconciled to my Father and receive mercy? Whose soul did I weep for this week? Whose soul will I weep for this week, today, tomorrow. Soul mercy takes a humble posture towards other people. In Psalm 103, we see this, God knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. You like that? We're dust. Like God remembers who we are and we are dust. That's God's way of saying that we are really weak. We're really weak and we're really needy. We hurt and we suffer. We suffer silently. Uh, Sometimes we have good intentions, but... um, those good intentions are misunderstood or so weakly uh, practiced. Relationships are hard work to us. We carry shame. We carry guilt. Our hearts grow cold. We're lonely in a crowd. We want to want Jesus. We want to want what he wants. We want to kill sin. We want to participate in community, but we're so inconsistent. Guys, soul mercy initiates with the full knowledge of another person's weakness and need for mercy. Like we know that going in, and we're okay with it. And we're still intent on doing good for, or by another person for Jesus' fame. Soul mercy initiates. It adopts a humble posture. It invites others into community. It exercises hospitality. It listens. It empathizes. Guys, listen. This is so important for us. Soul mercy is okay with the reality that every single person I'm in relationship with will need mercy all of the time from the Father 
and from me. There is not a relationship that I am in in which that person does not need mercy from the Father and from me. And so soul mercy leads us to remember, man, that's all I've received from the Father. I received it. I'm learning the way of mercy. And now I repeat that. I posture myself to show mercy towards others. So that's soul mercy. As we begin to wrap up, let's just talk about sin mercy for a minute. Sin mercy sustains relationships. If you don't practice sin mercy, you will not be able to to sustain any relationship. I don't care if it's a friendship or a marriage or a relationship with a sibling or even a work relationship. If you do not practice sin mercy, you will not sustain a relationship. I like to think of it this way. Mercy is the moleskin of meaningful relationships. You got moleskin, right? You ever worn moleskin? All right, so for those of you who have not worn moleskin, you're going to go on a long hike and you're worried about blisters on your feet. They're called hot spots, like where the blisters are going to form. So what you do is you slap the moleskin on wherever you think there's going to be a hot spot and it provides protection between your skin and the boot. Or after you have gotten a, a, a blister, you treat it and you place moleskin over the area so that you can continue on in that work and be okay. Guys, mercy is the moleskin of meaningful relationships. We see this in God's posture towards his people. Look at this in Nehemiah 9. He says, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. Why? For you are gracious and, mer- a mer- a gracious and merciful God. So what does that mean? God's posture towards his people in their rebellion was he could have made an end of them or turned his back on them and walked away, but he chose not to precisely because he's merciful. We see this in Hebrews 8. He says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Guys, in the absence of mercy, we turn our backs on each other. In the absence of mercy, we keep score on performance. We keep score against each other rather than choosing not to remember the sins that have been committed. Brad Bigney says it this way. He says, the cost of mercy always exceeds what you had initially calculated. If I could say one thing to an engaged couple before they're married, it would be that the cost of mercy in your marriage will definitely exceed whatever you have initially calculated. You will have to show way more mercy than you even know exists. Guys, it's not just true of marriage. That is universally true in any relationship. The cost of mercy always exceeds what you had initially calculated. But guys, mercy is the moleskin of meaningful relationships. It prevents the hot spots. It protects the wounds. It keeps the boots on and moving, if you will. No moleskin, no mercy, no relationship. Guys, the way of our culture is to keep score and to turn, turn our backs on those who have wronged us. The culture of our kingdom is to show mercy and stay face-to-face and refuse to keep score against each other. Guys, Jesus' kingdom, like that feels a little bit countercultural, but that's not the extreme. I want to give you a new life verse this morning. Ready for this one that has to do with mercy? Many of us have a, a life verse. Maybe it's something like in Philippians where I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, do you, you're ready to see what that verse actually means. Like it, it, mean, it, it applies to this right here that I'm about to read to you. This is, this is exactly what you need God's strength for you to be able to do right here. Ready? This is an obscure verse that maybe you've never read. It's in Leviticus chapter 23, and here it is. This is the culture of God's kingdom. 
So he's, he's got his people formed up and he's saying, he's like, he's just explaining what the culture is going to be like. And here's one of the principles that he gives. And it's mercy. He says, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, what does mercy do? You shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Crazy. If you see your enemy, we don't have any donkeys, but if you see your enemy with his donkey and is broken down on the side of the road and everything in you wants to be like, ha, got what you deserve. That's the way of the culture, guys. Those are rebel tendencies. The way of Jesus' kingdom is to show mercy. And he says, you will not leave him or her alone. Chrysostom asked it this way. He says, we should help a donkey which is struggling beneath a heavy load. Great, got it. But, and shall we not extend relief to those who are fallen under a worse burden of sin? Because that's a really good question. If Jesus in his kingdom is so countercultural that we say the application of mercy would lead us to pull a, the donkey of our enemy out of a ditch. If we're willing to do that for a beast of burden, is there any limit to the application of mercy to somebody who is created in God's image? So we receive that kind of mercy, we learn it, and then we repeat it. You know what that tells us? That tells us that karma is not a kingdom value. Too many Christians, myself included, spend a lifetime being discipled more by the principles of karma than we do the principles of the gospel. The principle of karma is they get what they deserve. In Jesus' kingdom culture, the principle is Jesus gets what we deserve so we can get what he deserves and we get mercy. Christianity has nothing to do with karma. Karma is, is the antithesis to the values of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus gets what we deserve so we can get what Jesus deserved and all we get is God's kindness through his mercy. All right, we need to wrap it right here. There feels like there's a little bit of a blessing warning in this passage. It says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Now, half of you in the room read that positively. You're great. I'm merciful. I'm gonna receive mercy. The other half of you read that negatively like, Wait a second, there's a condition now to Jesus' mercy. There's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance that I won't receive mercy. Like, what about all that stuff in Paul where it's like, I'm saved by grace, through faith, and not by works? Like, all that stuff. What does that mean? Well, we could restate it this way. Here's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are the merciful because, here's what, here's what we're saying. You're blessed if you are merciful because... You have already obtained mercy, and so it's, you've received it like the blind men. Uh, so you're blessed. You've received the mercy. You're learning the way of mercy, and you're merciful now. So that means you're repeating this pattern of mercy. So Jesus is pronouncing his blessing, and he's saying you're blessed because in anticipation of the mercy that you have yet to receive, you are showing yourselves to be merciful to other people. So what Jesus is saying is a life that repeats mercy, like a pattern of repeating mercy, is a sure sign that you have received mercy. You're, you're blessed because of this. And you will be blessed. It's a sign that you will, you will know God's mercy in the future. But we can state it negatively, and we should state it negatively. James says it this way in James 2, verse 13. He says, guys, listen. Judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Both, both applications, both statements are true. 
Judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. So the person who claims to have prayed a prayer and to have gone forward and to have, man, I I chose to follow Jesus. But if there is no pattern of repeated mercy in that person's life, Jesus is saying, I don't really care what that person's saying. It's invalidated by 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 the evidence of this life lived because mercy actually radically transforms a person's heart. Not that our application of mercy is perfect at any given point, But from that point forward, from the point that we receive mercy and we become a learner of mercy, we come, we become these imperfect, um, we become these imperfect practicers of mercy, but it becomes increasingly true in our life. The pattern builds. And so Jesus is saying, if there is no pattern of mercy, it just means that mercy was never received. And James says, judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. John Stott says, we can't claim to have repented of our sins if we are unmerciful toward the sin of others. So what does it mean then if I am, if I am unmerciful? Thomas Watson says, if I am unmerciful, there's only one explanation. I have never understood the grace and mercy of God. And so I am outside of Christ and I am still in my sins and I am unforgiven. All right, we've never understood that God is rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive to Christ. We've not, that, that truth, that beautiful truth has not given us life and shaped our lives yet. But we can add a second explanation, right? Because we're all sitting here and we're like, man, but I never show mercy perfectly. Like, so, so do I, am I meant to live my life with this tension then? Like I'm in and I'm out based upon my performance of mercy. So on the days that I really suck at showing mercy to people in my life, does that, does that mean I'm bounced out of the, fa- like, what does that mean? But I think there's a second explanation that'll help clarify this for us. If I am not merciful on any given day or in any given situation, it is because I have received mercy in the past, but I am not actively rehearsing that mercy that I've received from the Father. And so as I begin to rehearse the gospel again, my heart will be made ready and willing to extend the same kind of mercy that was extended to me. So the gospel is like the morning sunrise that brings light to the dark nights of my soul. So when my, when my heart is feeling cold and frozen, like mercy won't flow, the, the one the, the one thing that will thaw my heart out again and cause that mercy to flow is to remember, to go back and rehearse the limitless mercy that I receive from the Father, the future mercy that I'm receive from the Father, and that ray of sunlight, that sunrise will begin to thaw the, the iciness. And let's just be honest, guys. That iciness, it's a daily tendency. Like, that's the default of our hearts. That's our posture. Like, our hearts will freeze up absent gospel rehearsal. And so it's just the gospel that thaws our heart and causes the mercy to flow. Friends, there's not a single person in this room who doesn't need mercy from Jesus and from his community. And Jesus is the son of David, the rescuing king who gives mercy to all who ask. So how about today as a family? Let's actually do what the blind men did. Like let's do what Bartimaeus did. Let's together cry out to the son of David, thank him for the mercy that we have already received and pray for more mercy today and thank him that he will give that to us. And how about we posture ourselves more like Bartimaeus tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Let's just learn as a family to be, to have a humble posture and together daily cry out to the son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. So rather than just saying that, let's actually practice that as a family uh, right now. Thanks, Kyle.